0: Oh, well, good morning once again. If you're not already there, please do turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter one. While you make your way over there, let me just say once again how thankful I am to be with you all. Um, yeah, I've just enjoyed uh, coming here over the years, and it's it's exciting every time I, I hear from from Samuel of another time to get to to see you all and and worship with you. So thank you. I only wish my wife and Uh, Children could have joined me this morning, but my wife had a commitment in the nursery, and uh, she kept her commitment, and so they are at high point. But they send you their greetings, and uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Now I look forward to opening up God's Word with you. We'll be looking together at Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24, so let me read this passage for us, then I'll pray, and then we can dig into God's Word. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, as we... Reflect even on where each of us were before Christ and how you worked the miracle of salvation in our hearts. We praise you and we thank you that you are a God who works powerfully in the lives of your people. That you are a God who gives new hearts. You take people like us who were not your people and you have made us your people and we thank you for it. Father, use this text today to encourage us, we pray. Use it to grow us, to make us more like your son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As many of you know, John Newton uh, wrote the original words to the hymn Amazing Grace. While it's possible for us, I think, to sing songs like Amazing Grace and benefit from them without knowing anything whatsoever about the person who wrote it, I think there's something that makes the power of the gospel come to life in the lyrics of that song when you learn just a little bit about Newton's life. See, John Newton was amazed that God saved him because he knew what kind of man he was before God intervened in his life. He wrote of himself in his years prior to becoming a Christian. He said, I was capable of anything. I had not not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. In referring to his habit of swearing, Newton said, it seemed to have been as deeply rooted in me as a second nature. And at the end of his life, Newton wrote this said, I commit my soul to my gracious God and Savior who mercifully spared and preserved me when I was an apostate, a blasphemer, and an infidel, and delivered me from the state of misery on the coast of Africa into which my obstinate wickedness had plunged me. John Newton participated in the slave trade and was the captain of a slave trading ship before God saved him, and, and then he would eventually become a pastor. One In one biography, John Piper wrote about John Newton that to the end of his life, he was still marveling that he was saved and called to preach the gospel of grace. I think knowing a bit about Newton, as I said, gives us, it gives us a window into his heart. We understand why grace was so amazing to him. John Newton knew that he was lost, that he was completely blind, and apart from a miracle of God's grace, he would have continued as a wretch all the days of his life. But God intervened and saved him, which caused Newton to praise God for his amazing grace. So Newton wrote the famous lyrics, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. This morning, my hope is for all of us to pause and to marvel at God's amazing grace in saving sinners like us. In this morning's text, the Apostle Paul is going to tell the Galatians and us about his life. He's basically going to share his testimony, and he will do so not just to let us know his, his story, but in order to make the power of the gospel come to life so that the Galatians can see that his gospel comes from God. Like John Newton, the Apostle Paul underwent a radical transformation, and it's this very transformation that will serve to make Paul's point in this passage. A little context will be helpful for us before we dive in, just as far as Galatians goes. So in the, in the first ten verses of Galatians, Paul helps us to understand that false teachers had arrived who were not only leading the Galatians astray with a false gospel, but they were, they were even trying to discredit Paul and, and his gospel. Paul uses some of the strongest language that we will find in any of his letters in the opening section of this letter. You can see it right there in in verse 8. He said, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now he spoke this way because Paul understood that the difference between the true gospel which he is preaching and the other gospel coming from the false teachers is the difference between life and death. So Paul's not going to sit back and just see what the Galatians will decide to do. Paul loves them. So he's going to argue and persuade and help them to see, help them to understand that for them to choose anything other than his gospel would be a tragic error with eternal consequences. So Paul's going to make sure they understand that his gospel is God's gospel, that it comes from God. And that's what we'll see in our text today, that our gospel comes from God and the proof is in its power. Now, in order to make his point, Paul is going to put on display the power of the gospel, and the way that he's going to do that is by walking us through his life before Christ, then his encounter with Christ, and then his life after Christ. So we'll begin in verses 11 through 14, where we will see Paul's life before Christ. So look with me again at verse 11. "'For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel.' For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now Paul starts off in verses 11 and 12 by reminding the Galatians that God is the source of his gospel. This is his argument. He's saying, look, my gospel is not a human gospel. It's not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul touched on this in the very beginning of this letter. He opened his letter by saying in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There Paul began his letter by letting the Galatians know up front that he writes as an apostle who was appointed by God. And now Paul is communicating that his gospel comes from God. And it seems the false teachers who were leading the Galatians astray were actually going after Paul and saying he wasn't even a real apostle. And they seemed to be going after his gospel, saying that Paul's gospel was somehow flawed. They were saying he learned his gospel from the true, from the true apostles, the real, the real ones, but then he took it and, and distorted it. So Paul returns to this truth in verses 11 and 12, and he's going to keep returning to this truth that, that his gospel is from God. He received it from God, he didn't come up with it, and he didn't receive it even from anyone else. And I just want to pause there for a moment, because I think that can sound a little bit confusing at first. Like, what's wrong with us getting the gospel from someone else? Isn't that how all of us got the gospel? Isn't that why I'm talking about going to, to Ireland to speak the gospel in another location? And yes, we've all received the gospel because some faithful Christian loved us enough and had enough boldness to share it with us. That's why we have to remind ourselves of why Paul is writing here. There would have been absolutely nothing wrong with Paul receiving the gospel from other people if that's in fact what had happened, but he didn't receive it from other people. And the false teachers are accusing him, first of all, of not being a real apostle, and second of all, learning the gospel from the real guys and then distorting it for his own purposes. So in order to help the Galatians understand that he has the real gospel, he's making a case for both his apostleship and his gospel. He does this by showing them that while Paul didn't spend time with Christ during his earthly ministry, the risen Christ made a personal appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus where he commissioned him as an apostle, and he's also explaining that Jesus revealed the gospel to him supernaturally. So because of what Paul is arguing, these accusations will fall flat. Now in verse 13, Paul is going to begin to describe his life before Christ. So look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, if it's not clear, Paul wasn't what we might call a seeker. He wasn't curious or or wondering about the truthfulness of the gospel. Paul was seeking to destroy it. And that's exactly what we read in, in Acts chapter 9, where we're told, That Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That he went up to the high priest and asked him for letters to the the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was a murderer, he was a persecutor of the faith, and he was ruthless. This was the same Saul who, we're told, approved of Stephen's execution in in Acts 8 in a very chilling scene. So Paul is telling them, I sought to destroy this gospel because I believed it was dangerous. I believed it was wrong. I didn't come up with this and no one else taught, taught it to me. I was trying to kill and imprison anyone I could get my hands on or anything that had anything to do with Christ. Paul also seeks to make the point that he was the Jew of all Jews. It was actually his zeal for his religion that motivated him to persecute Christians. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Not only was Paul bent on destroying the church, but he was devoted to Judaism. He was devoted to, to human teachings, to human traditions, and he was convinced he was serving God in his former life in Judaism. Paul believed he had the truth. He didn't think his life was lacking anything. He poured himself into the traditions of his fathers, and humanly speaking, there was no chance of his life-changing course. You get what Paul's saying here in these first few verses. If there was ever an unlikely convert, Paul's saying, it was, it was me, I wasn't just running away from Christianity, I violently opposed it. I considered it my enemy because I believed it was God's enemy, so I tried to stamp it out and see it extinguished wherever I could. He's saying there's no human explanation for why I became a Christian or for why I now preach the gospel. If you look at my former life, you can tell I didn't receive the gospel from anyone else. Now, If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning. I know everyone is, is thankful, is glad that you're here. And we, we hope and we pray that what you hear this morning will, at the very least, give you a better idea of what, what it is that Christians believe. And I would ask you to engage with Paul this morning, to consider what he says in verses 13 and 14. And, and here's why Are you someone who thinks you're beyond saving? Maybe in your mind, Christians are all pretty good people. They were pretty good people before they were saved, and so of course it made sense for God to save them. Paul, in verse 13, destroys the idea that we can be too sinful to be saved. Maybe you feel that somehow you have placed yourself beyond the saving mercies of God through a lifetime of bad choices. And if if that's you, I want you to hear what Paul says verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul tried to destroy the church. He killed and imprisoned Christians and God saved him. This is something that Paul loves to do. He loves to undermine our ability to say that we're too bad for God to save us, that we've messed up too much and somehow there's, there's no hope for us. Look at my life, says Paul. I tried to destroy Christianity and God saved me. Surely you don't think you're worse than I was. Paul addresses another group of people in verse 14. And really what he says here addresses the specific situation going on in Galatia. The false teachers were seeking to add to the gospel preached by Paul of justification by faith, uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They were telling the Galatians they needed more than Christ. They also needed to observe the Old Testament laws and customs, including circumcision, if they were truly going to be saved. So let's look at verse 14 again. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's saying if that's the direction you want to go, trying to become right with God through your own religious efforts, I've outdone you in this. And let me tell you, it's a waste of time. There was no one as zealous as me. I was devoted to the law, and I can tell you where that road leads. You can't be religious enough to earn your salvation, you can't be good enough or do enough good works. You can't do enough religious activities, attend enough church services, go to enough Bible studies, or pray enough prayers to make yourself right with God. Paul says, I devoted myself to that type of religion, and it does not work. So while some people think they are too sinful to be saved, there are others who think they will earn their salvation through their religious efforts. And Paul destroys that line of thinking of what as well. If you are standing on your own good works and trusting in those to give you right standing with God, it's not enough. It will never be enough. God can save you, but it won't be through anything you do. God saves by revealing his son to us. And that's what we'll see next in Paul's life. In verses 15 and 16, we'll see Paul's encounter with the risen Christ got a tickle in my throat so if i start coughing just bear with me let's pick back up in verse 15 but when he who had set me apart before i was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that i might preach him among the gentiles As we've already seen, Paul was on a mission to destroy the church. That's what he was doing. He was on his way to imprison followers of Christ when Jesus went after him and showed him grace. Acts 9 tells us about Paul's conversion. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responds, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him, it says, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. What we see in Paul's conversion lines up with what he's saying here in Galatians. Paul was a man filled with hatred and determined to bring harm to the church. And it's Jesus who goes after Paul while Paul is on his way to hunt down followers of Christ. Paul is telling them, the only reason I now preach this gospel is because Jesus himself went after me and saved me. Now, nobody would have expected Saul to become a Christian, and he wouldn't have, except that God decided to call him by his grace and to save him. So then, why was Saul, Paul, the murdering persecutor of God's people, saved? Look at verse 15 again. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And we know that Paul wasn't saved because of anything good in him. He was on his way to persecute Christians when God saved him. It's hard to position yourself any worse than Paul if you're trying to earn favor with God. He was an enemy of God. Jesus actually made that clear on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was saved, as verse 15 puts it, because God had set him apart before he was born. And because God called him by his grace. Now we have to keep in mind that Paul was unique. He was set apart by God to be an apostle. This language is very similar to what we find in Isaiah 49 and and Jeremiah 1, when, when God speaks of setting those men apart as prophets before they were born. There are no more apostles today. No one is set apart to be an apostle anymore, but what we see here about Paul's salvation is true for each and every one of us. Paul was set apart while he was still in his mother's womb. God doesn't save us because of anything good in us. He freely chooses to save, he freely chooses to set his affections on people, to love them, to call them to himself, to choose them for salvation before they're even born. Now, if you or I were God, we wouldn't have saved Paul. I don't think. I think we would have found someone else to save other than him. He saves because he is a gracious God. If he he only saved good people, and we just all need to remember this this morning, people who are innocent and without sin, then none of us would be saved. What every person deserves is to go to hell because we have all sinned against a holy God. But God in his mercy has chosen to save a people for his glory and simply for his good pleasure. Paul, continuing in verse 16, adds that he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now that word pleased reminds us of God's heart towards us. If you're a Christian, hear me this morning. It pleased God to save you. It wasn't something he had to do. He didn't hold his nose as he approached you and, and, you know, almost was standoffish. Like, I think I'm going to go ahead and do this even though I don't really want to. He set you apart because he loves you. We see God communicating this in, in Deuteronomy 7. There God explains that he chose Israel not because of their greatness, but because of his love. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. This is unconditional love. We can't lose this salvation because we didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. Our salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends upon God's grace. And brothers and sisters, that's why we can stand secure in our salvation. As one preacher put it, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But thanks be to God. He, he saves his enemies, he keeps us in his hand, and we are safe and secure forever. So Paul explains that God went after him and saved him and revealed this gospel to him when he was God's enemy. And then notice verse 16. Let's pick back up in in 15 again. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So God revealed his son to Paul. This is key. No no human could have thought up Paul's gospel. His gospel is from heaven. To reject Paul's gospel is to reject Christ. But to believe Paul's gospel is to believe the life-changing gospel of Christ. This is a gospel we can have confidence in because it comes from God. God revealed his son to Paul, and for what purpose? So that Paul would reveal the son to the Gentiles. Paul was saved, not just for his own sake. He was saved so that he could then preach this gospel to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, God has not called us for the specific purpose of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, but as Christians, we are all called to share this gospel with other people. Like Paul, our salvation is extremely personal, and don't miss that. It is. But God also has ways in which he intends to use us for his glory in ways that go far beyond our individual lives. And just think for a moment, isn't God's patience amazing? All those years, Paul was running around trying to destroy the church. And God knew that he would eventually save him. And God saved him at exactly the right time. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He knew the Old Testament scriptures and he was zealous. You better believe that knowledge and that zeal were put to good use when he was converted. In God's good providence, everything about Paul's life only ended up serving God's purposes in the end. Whether you realize it or not, God has given you unique gifts and life experiences in order to be able to help others follow Christ. There are ways that some of you can uniquely Connect with people and relate with them and their experiences because you understand what they've been through in ways that many other people don't. God was preparing you, preparing your heart before you ever became a Christian. He was preparing you for how he intended to use you before he ever saved you. God set Paul apart. He called him by his grace. He revealed his son to him in order that he might proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. And we have also been saved in order that we might be a blessing to others by making this good news available to them. Paul also explains to us in First Timothy 1 that God saved him. The chief of sinners is the language he uses, the foremost of sinners. As an example to us that no one is too hard-hearted or too evil to be saved. I wonder, as you sit here this morning, who do you feel is beyond God's saving power? Is there some person or some type of person that you can even imagine? Now for some, it could be you. You might think it's you. but is it a friend? Is it a family member who's stuck in their ways? a coworker who holds different political opinions than you? Can you who can you not possibly fathom coming to faith in Christ? Perhaps it's a terrorist. Now a terrorist may sound like an, an extreme example, but we must realize that's essentially... What Paul was and that's what makes his testimony so unbelievably powerful it reminds us that if God could save Paul he can save anyone even the most hostile opponents of Christianity brothers and sisters don't ever assume that someone is beyond saving there is no such person if we buy into that lie that someone can't be saved then I would appeal to you this morning our God is way too small In Romans 1.16, we're told that the gospel is the power for salvation. We see that here in Paul's life. But let me, let me ask all of us this morning, do you really believe that? That the gospel is the power for salvation? Do you share the gospel with boldness? Are you burdened for the lost? Are you getting on your knees and pleading with God to save by the power of the gospel? And Do you really believe that he can do it? Who are you praying for right now, church? Who are you asking God to save? If you're not doing that, let me just encourage you to identify one person, someone in your life. It can be a family member, it can be a co-worker, it could be a neighbor, it could be anyone. Start praying. Start asking God to reveal his son to them. And then pray that he'll give you the boldness to perhaps even be the person to speak the words of life to them. I know some of you have likely been praying for a very long time for someone in your life, and some of you may be growing weary. You may think that your mom or dad is too hard-hearted, but their hard-heartedness is no match for God's grace, so don't stop praying. You may think that your brother or sister is too lost or too confused, but God's grace is more powerful than lostness or confusion, so don't stop praying. You may think there's no hope for your son or your daughter or your spouse or your friend, but as long as they are still breathing, there is still hope. So don't ever stop, breathe, don't ever stop praying because our gospel is the power for salvation. There is nothing that is impossible for him. On Paul's life before Christ and in his conversion, we see that there's no human explanation for the change in his life. Paul's life changed and it changed dramatically because God intervened. Jesus pursued him and saved him, and that's how he became a follower of Christ, and that's where he got his gospel. But what about Paul's life after his conversion? Paul will address that next. Finally, in verses 16 through 24, Paul is going to tell us about his life after his conversion. Now remember, Paul's been making one argument in all of this. He's responding to the claims from the false teachers that he isn't really an apostle, that his gospel isn't the real gospel, they're saying he picked up his, his gospel from the real apostles, but then he changed it. He's responded to this claim by letting them know that his gospel isn't even a human gospel. It's a divine gospel. And then as we've seen, he's walked through his life and showing he's showed how he received the gospel. In order to show he didn't receive it from anyone, it was revealed to him by Christ. Now in this final section, Paul's going to remove any doubt whatsoever about where his gospel came from. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, Paul's going to retrace for us the events following his conversion. The first thing he says is that after his conversion, he didn't run to Jerusalem to ask the, the other apostles if his gospel was correct or to ask them to teach it to him. Instead, he went to Arabia. Now, truth be told, we don't know exactly what Paul did while he was there in Arabia. But it seems most likely he went there to preach the gospel. Paul's point here is that he didn't go to the apostles or to anyone else to learn the gospel. He didn't need to. He had already received it from Christ. Paul continues in verse 18. He says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what i'm writing to you before god i do not lie i'm sure you can hear it but paul is just beating the same drum my gospel was not dependent upon the other apostles i didn't get it from them paul says he didn't even see the apostles and the apostles until 3 years after his conversion he did spend time with peter whom he calls cephas but they only spent 15 days together so paul didn't even see the the apostles until 3 years after his conversion and even then he only was with Peter briefly. It certainly wasn't enough time for Peter to have taught Paul the entire counsel of God. All right, let's pick back up in verse 21. He says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is where Paul's testimony climaxes and should cause us to rejoice. Though the people in the churches in Judea hadn't seen Paul, they were hearing about Paul. You see, word was getting around. Saul of Tarsus had a reputation and it was not a good one. After his conversion, and Ananias is told to go and lay hands on Saul and to pray for him. Do you remember how he responds? He basically says, uh, no, thank you. I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Is there anyone else that I could go see? Or perhaps you want to send someone else to this lunatic. When Paul attempts to join the disciples at Jerusalem, same thing happens. They were all afraid of him and didn't believe he was really a follower of Christ. They figured he was posing or pretending to be a follower in order to sort of infiltrate them and betray them. That's what everyone knew about Saul and expected of him. That's what fit with who he was. And you can imagine when the people in these churches were saying, when word got around, the one that we used to be afraid of, that we used to have nightmares about, that, that would hunt us down and that he would drag us away, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the same faith he once tried to destroy. And what does it say next? And they glorified God because of me. Well, of course they did. How else do you respond to such amazing news? There's no human explanation for why Saul of Tarsus, who used to try to destroy the Christian faith, was now hunting down people for the purpose of trying to proclaim the Christian gospel to them. Only a miracle of God can explain what happened in Paul's life. And that's why God receives every ounce of glory for it. Now, this should also remind us that when we are saved by grace, we will see our lives changed. You notice how Paul referred to his life before Christ in verse 13. How does he refer to his life before Christ? He says, for you have heard of my what? My former life. Think about those words for just a moment. My former life. A number of years ago, when I still went to the gym and worked out fairly often, that that time has long since passed me, Uh, I called a gold gym. And I don't know if they do this anymore, but at the time it, it caught me off guard and, and made me laugh. But uh, I called to get some pricing info for a membership and had a couple of questions. And the lady who answered the phone just said, Gold's Gem, how may we change your life today? At the time, yeah, I just, I just kind of laughed about it. But isn't that what we all want to hear? That our life can be changed for the better. If change is what you're after, not just getting in better shape, if you want your life to be transformed in a real and meaningful and lasting way, you're not going to find it through any amount of discipline or determination or diet or exercise. The gospel offers you the opportunity to have a new life. Only the gospel can promise that and only the gospel can keep that promise because it's backed by the power of God. If you believe the gospel, you have the ability to say, that was my former life. That was the old me. But by the grace of God, I stand here today in this room with you having this conversation as a new man or a new woman. We have to be careful when we talk about change. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've talked to Christians who are just frustrated and tired and worn out because they, they feel like they should be changing faster than they are. They don't understand why they still get angry so often or why they continue to struggle with certain sins. Sometimes I think we expect our story should sound more like Paul's story or look more like his story. And the reality is it doesn't usually work that way. Change takes time. Change usually comes through a lot of ups and downs and a lot of tears and a lot of wrestling with the promises of God and a lot of preaching the gospel to yourself. You've already heard me mention my, my three young kids. My my five-year-old and my four-year-old are, are getting better at this now, but my two-year-old can still make quite the mess when she's eating, and especially when we give her something like spaghetti and just kind of let her go after it. And when that happens, it's it's a lot of fun for the kid, but it can lead to a huge mess for us to, to clean up. There have, there have been times when my wife has started dinner and I've come home from work or something and it's already... You know, the scene is already unfolded, and it, it, it's a bit like walking into a, a crime scene. Spaghetti is scattered all over the kitchen floor, and she's covered in spaghetti sauce, and it's all over her face and her hands and, and her PJs or whatever she's wearing. The worst part about seeing a mess like that is knowing that the process to clean up my daughter is going to take some time. It's not going to be easy. I'm not going to say that I'm always even the one who does the cleaning up, but you get my point. It's not too different from what it's like for many of us when we come to faith in Christ. Our lives are a mess. God has entered into that mess, and he has saved us. And for most of us, we're not going to see that mess completely disappear overnight. After God saves us, he will sanctify us, but this is a gradual process that will take place for the rest of our lives. Now, while while the change may take time and likely will, if you are in Christ, you should see some change in your life. As you compare your old life before Christ and your new life in Christ, you should see some differences. If your life hasn't changed at all, if your desires haven't changed at all, that should signal to you that something may be wrong. I often describe it to my own church as the, the, the check engine light coming on your dashboard. That alerts you that something is wrong that you may need to give further attention to. And there should be a similar thing happening if your life looks exactly the same. again, don't hear me wrong, just because you're a Christian does not mean you're going to stop sinning. But your attitude towards your sin should change. Once Christ has invaded your life, you are now siding with God, and your sin is your enemy. In Romans 6, Paul paints the picture of how the grace of God actually sets us free to obey the commands of God. Before Christ, we were enslaved to our sin, but now that we are in Christ, we have been brought from death to life We have been set free from the bondage of sin. It no longer controls us. Do you understand what what baptism pictures for us? The grace of God is full of power. It meets us where we are, in our filth and in our sin, and it says by the grace of God you have been saved. But it doesn't leave us there in our sin. It says you have been set free to walk in newness of life because our gospel comes from God, brothers and sisters. It has the power to transform us. If you're a Christian and you want to grow and you want to see more change in your life, let me just encourage you to start by reading God's word and gazing at Christ. The more we gaze at Christ and the more we see his beauty and his truthfulness and fall in love with him and worship him, we will tend over time to become more and more like him. The gospel saves us, but we're not done with the gospel when we're saved. We must run back to the gospel time and time and time again. And let me just plead with you if, you, if you're here and you haven't joined a local church, please join a church that preaches the gospel. Consider joining this church because it preaches the gospel. So much of our growth happens in community with other believers. You need others around you. And if you're a member of this church, I just want to challenge you this morning, don't be a spectator. Don't sit on the sidelines. Come and participate and be involved in the life of the church and grow alongside other believers. And as you do that, pray and ask God to make you more like Jesus. That's a prayer he'll be pleased to answer. Brothers and sisters, how well do you know one another? Do you know their, their stories? Do you know how God has worked in their lives? When my wife and I first came to, to our church, we got a lot of invitations to, to dinner and, and meals with, with other family members. and um, Yeah, at first it was actually a little bit disorienting for us. We were, you know, new at the church and just want to get to, you know, just, let's just sit down and have a meal. And then we realized it was just a really common thing with people in the church to say, hey, tell me about how you came to faith in Christ. Over time, we began to really appreciate that question. It's a really good question. Um, yeah, there's nothing more encouraging and no better way to get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ than by learning about how God pursued them and how he saved them and who or what he used in their lives and how he's changed them over the years. So share your testimonies. We just encourage you in that and ask others to, to share theirs. And a brief word to those of you who were saved when you were seven years old or some young age, let me Just to offer this to you, if you you ever find yourself wishing that you had a more dramatic testimony than the one you feel like you have, please realize that if God spared you from enduring the pain of years of walking in rebellion, openly sinning against him, and leaving a wake of devastation behind you, that is something to praise God for. He was very merciful to you. I pray that God will save my kids at a very early age, that they would come to faith in Christ and follow him, that they would not even remember a day when they did not know and love and follow Jesus. And Believe me, if that's you, you have a powerful, powerful testimony of God's faithfulness in your life to share with others. Because regardless of your age, Jesus pursued you. He took out your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh and that is a miracle that can only be brought about by God. So share and encourage your brothers and sisters with God's grace in your life. Paul shared his testimony because he was trying to rescue the Galatians. They were in danger of being deceived by false teachers, and he knows it's a matter of life and death. And he knows there's no better way to explain to them that his gospel is from God than to point to his life and to say that the power of God is the only explanation for who I am today. And many of us can say the same thing, that the power of God is the only explanation for who we are today because we're not the same people we used to be. People have always gravitated towards, what can I do to get right with God? But that's not God's gospel. That's man's gospel. God's gospel says, Christ has done it. Trust in him, and you can have his righteousness. God's gospel removes our ability to be proud or to boast in our salvation. It causes us to simply boast in the cross and to marvel that God would save sinners like us. Much like Paul, John Newton was amazed that God saved him. What makes the lyrics to Amazing Grace so sweet is knowing that the man who wrote those words had tasted God's grace. God pursued him and transformed him from a wicked slave trader to a man who loved Jesus and proclaimed his gospel. Reflecting on his life, Newton wrote these words. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. If those words resonate with you as someone who has experienced the transforming power of the gospel, let me encourage you to reflect on God's faithfulness in your life, to marvel at his grace, and then ask the Lord to use you to go out and share about the grace of God available to all through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who created us. And even though we have sinned against you, you have demonstrated your love for us by sending your son to rescue us. So we say thank you. Thank you for Jesus' perfect life, which counts for us when we're united to him by faith. Thank you for his death, which paid the debt we owed for our sins. Thank you that this gospel is not man-made. Thank you that this gospel comes from you, because then it would have no power to save anyone if it didn't come from you. Help us to apply the gospel to our lives every day, cause us to love Christ and to tell others about him in hopes that they too can experience the power of your gospel. We thank you, Father, for not leaving us in our sins. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.